Welcome, welcome to another episode of The Breakout. I'm your host, Abhi Gupta, and uh, this is my co-host, Leo Xia. On today's episode, we have a guest joining us, uh, Drew Osinchuk, one of uh, the analytic gods, uh, one of the guys in fantasy that Leo and I have been following for uh, a better part of a year now. Uh, welcome to the show, Drew. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so, Drew, welcome to the show. Um, for all of you that don't know, Drew is big on Twitter um, under the Twitter handle DF Bean Counter. Can you walk us through like what bean counter means and what got you into Dynasty in the first place? Yeah, sure. So uh, what got me into Dynasty in the first place is I, I love like the team building aspect of fantasy football. And in redraft, obviously, it only lasts for a year. Dynasty's forever. So you just keep building and building and building. I was the I was the kid like glued to Madden, but I never actually played any games. I just like played franchise mode on repeat. Uh, a head coach 2009 i think it was was like my favorite game of all time you couldn't even play games if you wanted to but it's super <laughs> in-depth franchise mode so anyway, that's kind of what got me into dynasty i like the the team building type of thing and then my uh my my twitter handle df bean counter it comes from i'm an accountant i'm a cpa and in my when i first started articling at the firm that i article of that one of the partners we, we had a fantasy football league and one of the partners in it he had his name as Bean Counter, B-E-E-N underscore K-O-W-N-T-E-R, I think it was spelled. So like a phonetic weird version of how to spell it. <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny, kind of making fun of ourselves a little bit. And then when I tried to put my, or try to come up with a Twitter handle, I was like, I don't know what to call myself. So I, I end up going with DFF Bean Counter for Dynasty Fantasy Football. And then I found out there's like this whole website where everyone on the website is called DFF. So I had to knock one of the Fs off. So now I'm just DF bean counter and I just just stuck with it. I don't know. It's pretty catchy. It's pretty catchy. One <laughs> of the things we love about your process is your ability to like market these and come up with really catchy words um, for your different processes. Uh, can you talk us through your bulletproof process, what that means and what each tiers kind of signify? Sure. So the bulletproof process is it's like a grading system for prospects uh it's all based on analytics i'm not like a i'm not like a true analytics person like i'm not like i'm not like a real nerd i'm like a fake nerd so I, i'm not like doing regression analysis or anything like that i'm i'm listening to the other smart people that are doing that kind of work and telling me okay this thing matters okay this thing matters like the the extent of my uh like true analytics type stuff is i know how to run a correlation formula which is really, really easy. Like I'm very novice in that sense of it. I think that probably the reason that I have the following that I do on Twitter is because I, I, I don't know as much as all the other people do. So when I'm talking about it, I'm talking about it in like layman's terms that are really easy to understand that I think everyone can just like instantly read it and understand what I'm saying, whether they agree with it or not is a totally different situation, but at least they understand where I'm coming from and what I'm saying. But yeah, often... Often they don't agree with it. We'll see. <laughs> you make the data accessible to people. And one of, I think that's like a really difficult aspect of telling a story with data is, well, I think a huge aspect of it that's really difficult is telling a story with data. And that's something that you do with your Twitter threads and walking people through like, this is how you're thinking about the process. Yeah, no, for sure. I think honestly, like I, I see so many of the like super smart analytics people putting these like, 
you know, the stuff that you need like a stats degree to understand on Twitter. And I'm like that, that reaches like 1% of the Twitter population. And uh, like, that's one of the reasons I talk about hit rates so much is it's like, everybody understands a hit rate. Like if they have a higher hit rate, that's a good thing. Nobody understands what a P value is. Most people don't understand what R squared means. Like if you've never taken a stats class, that stuff is mm-hmm. way over your head. Mm-hmm. So for me, like I took a stats class like almost 20 years ago. So I'm, I'm very far removed from it. But I, like I can still kind of talk the language. Like I know what R squared means. I know what a P value is. So when those people are posting stuff, it speaks to me, but it probably doesn't speak to most of the Twitter community because most people don't have a stats class. And if they did, mm-hmm. they probably didn't listen anyway because it was it's kind of lame. <laughs> so for our viewers out there, how do you define hit rate? Uh, so I do four different or uh, hit rate for me. It depends on the position. Quarterback, uh, running back, and tight end are all top twelve. So I'm looking for top twelve seasons. Typically, I'm looking for top six seasons at tight end, but the pool is so small once you narrow it that that much that it's really hard to like zero in on anything at that at that mm-hmm. point. So I use top twelve, and then wide receivers I use top twenty four. Gotcha. And you have these different bulletproof tiers in in your uh, fantastically marketed uh, uh, tiering system. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about how one you came up with the name uh, for bulletproof? Uh, uh, you know, prospects, and then what are the different tiers that you have? It's funny. I was talking to another analyst one time in like in DMs. He's like, "How did you come up with bulletproof?" And I was like, "Honestly, it was an accident. Like, it wasn't like <laughs> I had come up with this like grand scheme of, you know, what I'm gonna call my enterprise bulletproof fantasy football, and I'm gonna name my tier bulletproof." I was honestly doing a Kyler Murray prospect thread, my first one, my first ever prospect thread on Twitter more or less the first piece of real analysis that I ever did on Twitter. And I got through his profile and I like muttered to myself, like, holy smokes, this guy doesn't have any holes in his profile. Like he's bulletproof. And I was like, oh, that's kind of a cool thing to say. So I went back to the first one and I changed it to bulletproof prospect. And then I just went with it. And then the next player, I I don't remember who I did next, but at some point I got to like, JJ Arcega Whiteside, and I was like, yeah, he's like okay. He's like, yeah, maybe. So then that became a tier. And it just like it just came naturally. I don't know. There wasn't a, a master plan behind it, is maybe the way to put it. Hmm. So what are what are the different tiers that you have and what are the hit rates that are associated with them? Okay, so every tier has the same or every uh, position has the same tiers, and the and the hit rates in the tiers across positions are all the same. And that's on purpose so that when I'm talking about a bulletproof player, it means something no matter which position it is. Mm-hmm. So bulletproof prospects, the bucket that they fit into, the historical hit rates are around 75% or, or up. It depends on the position. And then the uh, coin flip is my second tier. And it's just like it sounds. It's 50-50. So they're, they're kind of like your average player. And then we have maybe tier, which I've recently changed due to much, much confusion between what's better between coin flip and maybe. So maybe he's gone now and it is replaced by long shot, which is like a 25% hit rate bucket. And then we have the bust here, which is, which is not very good. And it's uh, like 12 to 10%, depending on the position. I think actually tight ends is even lower. It's like 8%. It's really bad. So that's how the tiers work. Uh, when you, when you look at different pro, when you look at different prospects, uh, obviously there's a lot of, different uh 
data that goes into it. Uh, do you have a favorite metric for, let's say, wide receivers uh, that you use just on a daily basis more than others? I don't know that I have like a favorite metric per se. Like they, they're all kind of, I mean, they're all important, right? Like uh, if I had to pick one metric and like, if you're, if your question is, if I have to pick one metric and that's the only metric I can use, which one would I use? It's breakout age. That is the best metric in my opinion. If you have an 18 or 19 year old breakout wide receiver, they already have great hit rates. Like beyond that, like just with that, you're like out hitting the market, which is, which is good. And then the other, like, I don't actually use breakout age, which is kind of funny to say it would be my favorite. So I don't use it in like, it's like intended sense. I use age adjusted college production. So I'm comparing age 18 to age 18, age 19 to age 19 and how these players uh, perform in, I use yards per team pass attempt and I use um, market share of receiving yards. So yards per Team pass attempts is just like it sounds. Receiving yards divided by pass attempts. Uh, market share is, again, just like it sounds. Receiving yards for the player divided by the team's total passing yards. Super straightforward. Like, you can calculate this stuff. You don't need uh, you don't need an advanced mathematical degree or a statistics degree. Like, the, anybody with a calculator can figure out these metrics. And then I just compare them across, you know, across the whole population. Well, how did this player do at 18 versus this player? And what did all the good players do? And what did all the bad players do? And then you, you know, you build the process out from there. So breakout age, if I have to pick one, is my pick. But again, I don't actually use it in the way that it's meant to be used. But it it factors in heavily because I'm looking for age 18 and age 19 production mm-hmm. on a market share basis or on a yards per team pass attempt basis. Do you think that the way that breakout age is traditionally used and marketed on Twitter is kind of a, there's, there's, there's almost two sides of it. There's people that are breakout age truthers and there's like people that just absolutely hate breakout age, BMI, any other metric that's on, on Twitter. Yeah. So like, there's a whole bunch of people. I, I always joke that they're like breakout age flat earthers. Like they're, they're just deniers of breakout age. And it's like, you can show them like, look at, Everyone who's 18 does well. Everyone who's 19, and it's not everyone, but the vast majority of 18 and 19 year olds, 18 and 19 year old breakout ages do well. And they're like, yeah, but, but like, you know, AJ Green had an age 20 breakout age. And it's like, yeah, okay. AJ Green had an age 20 breakout age. I agree. He did, but he's one of like, you know, a very low percentage that actually hit. There's a, there's way more age 18 or age 20 breakout ages that didn't hit than AJ Green. Like you need to look at the denominator, not look at just the one guy who hit. And then even with breakout age, you can break it down even further because when you look at the guys who hit with age 20 breakout ages, more often than not, that's their first season. They didn't break out earlier because they didn't play earlier. So like the age 20 breakout age guys that hit are usually like AJ Green, Cooper Cup, Kenny Galladay, uh, Michael Gallup, Calvin Ridley, like guys that all dominated from their first season. They just didn't play at 18 or 19. So they don't get the breakout age at 18 or 19. A lot of analytics folks are actually moving to uh, experience adjusted production rather than age adjusted. I've been playing around with it. I haven't really found much success with it yet, but uh, I like, I just kind of started playing around with it recently, but yeah, like the correlations on on experience adjusted are actually higher than age adjusted. I just use some other stuff that makes the younger players stand out a little bit better. 
So it seems like your formula is rooted in things that we can measure, right? So how did you produce? How much do you weigh? Uh, What's your three cone speed? All that sort of stuff. (laughs) Do you consider any of the things that we don't have numbers for yet? You know, scheme fit, uh, personality, work ethic. Are those things that you think are important or are they things that, you know, the numbers tell us 90% of the story so they don't matter? Yeah, I think the numbers tell you 90% of the story. So the other stuff doesn't matter. If you're like, I I always find it funny when people are talking, well, he's a great, you know, he's a hard worker. Like there was just a thing out about Drew Locke today, I think. I was like, oh, no, no, he's like, he's his work ethic is much better this year. So he's going to be a better player. I'm like, was he really not doing anything the rest of his career? Like, was he, was he not studying film the rest of his career? Because I do believe that, you know, that kind of stuff matters, but it's like on the margins. Mm. Like, him studying more isn't going to make him throw more accurately. You know what I mean? Like, anyways, the point of this is all to say that usually the guys with the strong work ethics are successful because they have strong work ethics. Some guys, yeah, they'll float by on just pure, pure skill. Like they, they're, they don't have the intangibles. They're just really talented individuals. And then they get to the top level where everyone is really talented and most of them are hard workers. So then maybe they get, flustered out but you hear like there's lots of stories of like superstars that are like not hard workers that were just really talented players or they it just came naturally like they they understood how to you know set how to stack the defender they didn't have to study how to do it they just like innately knew how basically so yeah i don't really factor in anything like that if you can't measure it then how do you know what really matters that's more or less what it comes down to and even even with metrics and stats and things like that, there's a whole bunch of them that don't matter. Like we can measure it and it doesn't matter. So we need to like zero in on the stuff that we can measure that does matter. And if we, if we measure it and it doesn't matter, then it doesn't matter. There's no like making excuses for it. If we can't measure it and it matters, well then, you know, it probably shows up someplace else in production or in draft capital or in whatever other kind of thing there is. So you're saying that these other metrics that exist they still collect signals on those qualitative things, but we don't like, even though we can't put a score to personality, we can calculate, you know, how it impacts that player's production through the other metrics. Yeah. Like if, you know, a wide receiver is a real difficult person to play with. Well, the quarterback's probably not going to throw to them. So they're probably going to produce very much or the coach Mm -hmm. is going to bench them because they're a bad attitude or they're, you know, like those kind of things manifest themselves, right? Like mm-hmm. if somebody isn't a team player, then their team probably doesn't like them. And, you know, they won't go to their birthday party and that's going to ruin their draft capital. That's fair. <laughs> I love that example. <laughs> so l- let's move to applying your bulletproof prospect, uh, sorry, bulletproof process to the 2021 class. Uh, We just began to touch on wide receivers. And I think that, you know, this wide receiver class is really, really polarizing. And we can summarize this entire debate around Jamar Chase and Devonta Smith, right? And the big debate that we have between these two guys is they both produced, but one guy did a lot earlier and one guy did a lot later. And one guy's really, really beefed up and the other guy's a twig. So with this framing, how would you say that you weight college production versus athleticism? So 
like ath- like athleticism doesn't matter at the wide receiver position for the most part. Like when we, when you look at like correlation of athleticism, like I use a relative athletic score. It's by at math bomb on Twitter. He's got a whole website for it. He has players basically to the dawn of time. And he has a formula that he calculates and he uses all their, he like rolls all their athletic testing at the combine into one number. It's called relative athletic score, RAS. And when you put that in, it doesn't give you any signal. <laughs> like there, there's the correlation is very, very low. But when you, for me, like, so doesn't make bad players good is maybe the way to put it. Like unproductive players that are athletic still aren't going to be productive because they were never productive in the first place. They're, they had those athletic gifts and it didn't help them in college. So why would it help mm-hmm. them in the NFL? That's kind of how I look at it. But I did find when I'm looking at athleticism, like only in my top tier, like the, the cream of the crop. And then I filter by athleticism by this RAS score. It gives some like incredible results that – I wouldn't have expected to find necessarily based on the correlation. And it's not so much like, I don't like it could be anything, right? Like it doesn't necessarily mean that athleticism is driving this because the correlation is still like zero, but it seems to matter because when we look at the hit rates of like the wide receiver, one hit rates and the wide receiver, two hit rates within my bulletproof tier. So the best players, it just skyrockets once you filter for extreme athleticism. So the hit rate, like I have, let me just count here really quick. Uh, what is that? Nine players with a that are bulletproof or have like top five draft capital and then also elite um, elite RAS scores. And like all of them hit top 12 seasons multiple times except for Braylon Edwards, the Jets uh, wide receiver. He only hit once. Or was, was it the Jets or maybe it was the Browns? I think he played for both. I don't remember which one. Yep. Anyways, he, he only hit once, but like everyone else hit like multiple times. And the list is like a who's who of who you want on your dynasty teams. It's Julio Jones, AJ Green, Brandon Cooks, DJ Moore, Justin Jefferson, Justin Jefferson, by the way, who I did not know this back in draft season last year. I had not got this far in my process. In fact, let, let's just let me finish this and then we'll go. We'll talk about that in a second. <laughs> Justin Jefferson, Calvin Johnson, Andre Johnson, AJ Green, Des Bryant, and Braylon Edwards. So it's just like guys that are like top of the league type wide receivers, right? So I didn't know about this. I hadn't actually developed like a concrete process until well in, well, not well into the season. The wide receivers I finished, I believe in, uh, I don't remember, September, October, mid season, I would say. Before that, I was just like an analytics user. So I looked at the same kind of things, but I didn't have like a defined process. It was just like, you know it when you see it. So I would look at a prospect. I would look at their market share. I would look at their yards per team attempt. I would look at, you know, all these different things. And then I would just like arbitrarily assign them a grade based on how that impressed me. (laughs) So the bulletproof tier wasn't like a defined, like these guys all did the same thing. And it was really pointed out to me last year when I was talking about AJ Brown, who I said was bulletproof. And then when you look at his, his like actual production, it was like identical to Nelson Aguilar, who I didn't like. And it kind of dawned on me that, whoa, like I'm really being arbitrary with this. The whole reason that you use analytics is to take the subjectivity out of it. Right. Mm-hmm. So then I like dove back in and I was like, you know what? I got to find a way to actually define this. And once I did, like some guys changed that I wouldn't have 
that I didn't like changing, like AJ Brown, he went from bulletproof down to coin flip, but then it like improved the hit rate. Like I went, it went from, you know, pretty much anybody who produced in college at any rate that hit the thresholds was bulletproof. Like Andy Isabella, he's bulletproof. Tyler Lockett, he's bulletproof. T.Y. Hilton, you're bulletproof. Like it was just everyone that produced. And then once I started filtering and like analyzing, like, well, okay, what, what changed between this guy or this group of guys and this group of guys? And it was like, oh, well, actually, you know what? The, you know, I used to use early declare. I thought early declare was super important. So when I was looking at AJ Brown, I'm like, ah, he's an early declare. Yeah, he did age 20 breakout, but he didn't start till 19. So that's good. And then once I started actually looking at the full population and looking at, you know, you know the guys that didn't produce or didn't declare at 21 they declared early but it was at 22 the hit rates weren't as good mm. it's the like serial winners that are incredible prospects that have the high hit rates so you're looking at like guys that like you know they come out of high school they immediately declare for college they go from high school straight to college at 18 they play at 18 they play at 19 they play at 20 they're so good the nfl says you know what come on down you're a first round pick you're a second round pick declare early let's go those guys are the ones that have the extreme hit rates. We're talking about like Justin Jefferson, uh, T Higgins, CD lamb last year. Like those guys are in the bulletproof tier. The, and then when you look at like the guys like AJ Brown, it's like, yeah, no, like they had some good data points, but there's a lot of guys that had good data points that didn't turn out like the 21 year olds did. So then instead of early declare, I kind of flipped to 21 year old and I'm like, yeah, you know what? An early declare or a senior that isn't going into the NFL at 21 that produced like they should, they have the same hit rate. So I don't really care about early declare anymore. It's more, I, it's more about age 21 and uh, just kind of built from there. It was like, well, what does this matter? Well, does this change anything? Well, does this change anything? And then once I was, you know, like we have to break up these players, right? Like, like we have all these bulletproof players. How do we decide which ones are better? So then it was like, how do we like, what, what is impacting hit rate in these, uh, in the bulletproof tier, like how do I know which guy to go after that is a great prospect? And then it was like, well, this athleticism thing. Like once I filtered on extreme athleticism, then we got Julio, Cooks, DJ Moore, Justin Jefferson, and so on and so forth. Like we, we get a new level of production, a new level of NFL production. And that was really exciting. And then the other thing that, you know, we – I don't know if you guys know Cooper on Twitter. Cooper mm-hmm. underscore DFF, I think, is his, is his handle. He's one of the patrons. He's like the patron. He he helps me. Like he stress tests the rankings for me. He helps me build the build the databases and all that stuff. If I have an idea, I'm like, hey, Cooper, am I an idiot or does this make sense? He tells me if I'm going down the wrong path, brings me back in, reels me in. You know, he's my guy. So anyway, we were like going back and forth. I'm like, oh yeah, like you need to have. Uh, who was uh, Terrace Marshall? I'm like, this guy's gonna be terrible in my process, but I love Terrace Marshall. Like, give me the Terrace Marshall. I'm breaking all the rules on Terrace Marshall. <laughs> like, dude, like, you're wrong. I'm like, no, I'm right. And then we went back and forth. And I'm like, he's an alpha. Like, I want alphas. He's like, why do you want alphas? I'm like, because they have better hit rates. And then he like proved me wrong. He's like, well, here's here's the hit rate for big guys, here's the hit rate for little guys. And I was like, well, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for perennial wide receiver ones. That's what I want. So then when I flipped the criteria from a single top 12 season to three top 12 seasons, then we see the alphas emerge and it's like night and day. And it, and it plays out at bulletproof. It plays out at um, 
coin flip, maybe bust. Like the the alphas are the guys you want in dynasty. So when these guys like KJ Hamler, he was bulletproof last year, but he's definitely not an alpha. Like he's tiny, not like not like Devonta Smith tiny, but he's tiny. Mm-hmm. And it was just like yeah, like I like I didn't have him ranked with the other bulletproof players last year because of this. Like I, we didn't define alpha versus beta. It was more like like I said, like I used to do just. You know it when you see it. So I, I had him ranked way lower than the than the top tier guys. But anyways, so you start filtering for these kind of things to figure out who's good, who isn't good, who has a better chance of like wide receiver one on repeat, like the guys that are just in the wide receiver one mix year over year over year. And like, it's just, those are the kinds of things that you need to keep looking for. Like, the top 24 hit rate was already great, right? Like we, we already knew that the guys that are in here are already great. The guys that miss that are in here, by the way, are usually like the predictable guys. Like it's, you know, it's KJ Hamler, who's like a third round dynasty rookie pick. Like nobody's saying he's the best player in the class by any stretch. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing that I always find funny with this type of thing is people always like, or not always, but people come to me sometimes and like, well, you're just picking the good players. I'm like, well, isn't that a valuable skill? Like, <laughs> Don't you want the good players? <laughs> like, well, you, you need to find the sleepers. I'm like, well, the, like, no, just get the first round right. The first round is a 50% hit rate. Like, it's not like we're just crushing the first round. Not like everybody gets the first round right. Like, mm-hmm. we're getting the first round right because we're eliminating the guys that don't fit. So anyway, I kind of lost track of where I was going with that. But back to your original question. You were talking about Jamar Chase and Devonta Smith. So Jamar Chase looks like he's going to fit into that that like upper tier like the generational tier with the the generational alpha tier with the julio jones and the aj green and and like that type of player he's going to get the top five capital probably or top 10 at the very least he's definitely going to be a first round pick like we know Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. and then i read an article in the athletic last year they do this really interesting article called the freak list and it's just a bunch of players that they list that like are, are freaky athletic and I went back, I don't know, four four years maybe, three, four years, and looked at their athletic list or looked at this freak list. Then I compared it to how these players actually performed at the Coleman, and they were like wildly accurate. Because I, I like I was expecting it to be like, yeah, I mean, everybody's on the freak list, right? Like it's, you know, everybody runs their pro day at 4-4. So of course they're going to be. But it was actually the guys who did perform freaky at the NFL Combine. And Jamar Chase is on the freak list. So I was like, you know what? He produced at a rate that is like unheard of as a 19 year old. Like, like he had a Devonta Smith season at 19. Like that matters so much. When, mm-hmm. we, when we're talking about like breakout age, we were talking about breakout age a few minutes ago. The reason that breakout age matters is because that means that these players that are less athletic and less like smaller, less athletic are competing against bigger, more athletic, more experienced players and they're succeeding. So when they don't have the advantage they're still winning. That's why breakout age matters so much. And when we look at Jamar Chase, he didn't just succeed. He like, like dominated college football at 19. So, and he did it alongside Justin Jefferson, who is like a, like, like we already know that Justin Jefferson is one of the best wide receivers in the NFL. We already know that. So when we look at Jamar Chase's prospect profile, we're like, he actually outproduced Justin Jefferson, like, at, at, and he was younger, and he's going to be drafted higher, and he's going to be more athletic. 
Like, how how do you have anything other than Jamar Chase anywhere near your number one? He is he is head and shoulders my number one. And then we look at Demonta Smith and like just you know flip the script basically, and we have the opposite profile, right? We have a guy who couldn't beat out players that we already know are mediocre to poor in the NFL. Like Henry Ruggs, I just saw PFF posted, I think it was today even, that Henry Ruggs has like the lowest grade in, among first rounders in like the last, I forget how many years. So yeah, okay, they had a first rounder, but he wasn't good in college. Like it's not like he stole a bunch of market share. Like he only had 17% mm. was his, his highest college dominator rating. Oh, so that's low. <laughs> yeah, that's really low. Like we're looking for like 30%. So when, when he only has 17%, he's no different than another, like nobody on the team, like bad players have 17% on every team. So for Devonta Smith, not to break out earlier because of the presence of Henry Ruggs doesn't really make sense. So if your argument is that, well, Jerry Judy's really good. Well, Jerry Judy didn't have a really good, rookie season he had an okay mm. rookie season the thing for me is that jerry judy and henry ruggs entered the nfl and they had exactly the type of season that we would expect based on their college production jerry judy looked like a good nfler or like an nfler at the very least like he looked like he belonged in the nfl in college henry ruggs looked like he didn't belong in the nfl in college and then we get to the nfl in the rookie seasons and they played exactly to those prospect profiles and we made exceptions for them last year, or most people did, because of the presence of these future first-round picks. And it's like, well, if it didn't matter for Judy and it didn't matter for Ruggs, why are we then making the same exceptions for Jalen Waddle and Devonta Smith? We already know they played to their prospect profile. Mm-hmm. So shouldn't these guys play to their prospect profile? And Devonta Smith's prospect profile isn't good. He didn't produce at 18. He didn't produce at 19. He did produce at 20 which was a great sign. I, like it still matters to some degree that he played at Alabama. I just wouldn't like, you know, boost rugs because he played at Alabama. Like you might as well boost everyone who played at Alabama then because none of the other guys produced either. Anyways, Devonta Smith has this like meh production profile. And then he just exploded at 22 and it's funny because if you just like like my my grades are more or less locked in after their junior season, after their third season, they're pretty much locked in. The senior season doesn't matter. I'm already mm-hmm. assuming that every junior will hit at the senior level. Like I'm just making that assumption because they should. So Judy going on and just crushing this year, yeah, I mean that should be expected. And then when you look at, um, you know, like I get told all the time that. Yeah, but he he produced like to this extreme level. Like he didn't just produce; he produced to an extreme level. It's like okay, but once you get above a certain level, it doesn't matter anymore. It's a threshold. It's not a. It's not linear. Like forty percent college dominator isn't better than thirty five percent college dominator. It's the same. Once you get diminishing returns. Yeah. Yeah. Once you get to the once you get to a certain level, it's all the same. So, Devonta Smith just doesn't have a lot of good data points. And then when you factor in that he's just like this, like toothpick, like, like he's skinny for a normal guy. He's not skinny for like a NFL player. Mm-hmm. It's, it's alarming. There's nobody that's been drafted basically at his BMI since Marvin Harrison. Mm-hmm. And 
to be honest, the website that everyone's pulling that from, I'm not even sure is correct because they had a whole bunch of players wrong. They had Justin Jefferson at like a tiny BMI because in college he was listed at like 6'2 and 190 pounds or 6'3 and 190 pounds, which he's not. He's like, I forget what he is now. Is he 6'2, 205 or something like that? Yeah, some, something like that. Like he's fine for BMI. So this website was like wrong across the board. They had AJ Green or not AJ Green, Randy Moss wrong. They had Randy Moss at this tiny BMI. They had him listed at like 6'4 and 190 or 180 or something like that. You look up his actual pro day and then it's supposed to be from the combine. He didn't even go to the combine. Like he missed his combine. You go to his pro day, he weighed in at like 6'4, 210, which is what he played at, like which is a good BMI, which is the same as like AJ Green's BMI. Uh, anyways, I'm, I'm going on a bit of a tangent here, but, uh, yeah. So once you start looking at, well, BMI, does this really matter? Well, this is what factors into like profile type. I was just talking about the alpha and the beta. Demonda Smith looks like a beta, which is a really low, low ceiling, right? Like think like, like he's Jerry Judy. He, he honestly is Jerry Judy all over again. If Jerry Judy had stayed and Devonta Smith had declared last year, I would have expected it to be the exact opposite. Like Jerry Judy would have just crushed this year as well. They're like, there's no doubt in my mind. They're the same player essentially, which is to say like they're complimentary receivers. They're mm-hmm. NFL receivers, but the complimentary. And then, so let's tangent now onto BMI because you got me down this path talking about Devonta Smith. So BMI, so with data, right, there's correlation and causation. And I'm not really, how do I word this? I'm more concerned with being right than why I'm right, if that makes sense. If the correlation on BMI is good, which it is fairly good, then that means that there is correlation there. That means the heavier you are, the more likely you are to hit at the NFL level. And with BMI, I understand that when you run it through a regression model that the p-value isn't very strong because the other things are making more of an impact. But when you're looking at hit rates and you control for those other things, like you say, okay, I'm only looking at, you know, coin flip prospects. And then I filter for BMI. Well, the coin flips that are tiny, the beta guys, they're terrible. The coin flips that are alpha guys, they're exciting. Like there's a lot of exciting alpha coin flips. So when we're controlling for draft capital and production and breakout age and all that stuff, then when we start, you know, we're 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 uh, nitpicking at this point, right? Like we're we're saying, well, what separates these guys that are all basically the same? Well, BMI is one of those things that separates these guys that are all basically the same. I understand it may not be the driver, and it might be something else entirely, like. Like BMI, like alpha size guys, the B, the high BMI, the big guys, they usually play the X receiver position, right? So is it them playing the X receiver that's making them so much better fantasy players or is it their size? Well, does it matter? Like if they're the more likely guys that are going to play the X position, then, you know, maybe it's the X receiver that I should be talking about instead of the, the beta and the alpha or the high BMI and the low BMI. It doesn't really matter to me it matters that they're the ones that are getting all the targets Hmm. when you're, you know, like the causation correlation thing there doesn't really matter to me. And then there's the other side of it where you're like, well, does BMI make bad players good? No, it doesn't make bad players good. It's like, if you're a terrible football player, but you're thick, that doesn't mean you're going to be better in the NFL. You're still terrible. Like you had that gift when you were in college and it didn't help you then. 
So it's probably not going to help you now. Same, same idea with athleticism, right? Like athleticism doesn't make bad players good. But when we're looking at the cream of the crop, it maybe makes the uh, the good players just a little bit better. Oh, no so so if I were to synthesize, you know, of what is a very very good rundown of all of those different metrics, <laughs> uh, that was what, guys. When we say he's good at storytelling, we mean it. Uh, <laughs> you know what you're saying is that all of these things are important, but they're important in the context that you view these metrics, like. Your athleticism doesn't matter unless you've produced, right? Yeah. You have to like it's like I gotta pass first grade to go to second grade. Exactly. Case, you're saying please produce in college, produce well, produce at a high threshold, produce consistently. And then and only then do we look at your, you know, other predictors. But we cannot rely on pure athleticism in order to dictate your quality of play because you need to have done it before to do it later. Exactly. Yeah. Like like I said, athleticism isn't going to make a bad player good. Like the DK Metcalf thing, it for every DK Metcalf where we have elite athleticism and no production, we have a Miles Boykin. They're the same <laughs> guy. Like, mm-hmm. like it doesn't improve your hit rate once you like if you go to the bus tier and you just filter by athleticism, there is no difference in hit rate between the highly athletic guys and the non-athletic guys. Just happened that DK Metcalf happened to hit. He's one of like the 10%, right? Terry McLaurin, he's one of the 10%. He's a very athletic guy. Also, I think he's in, in the elite uh, elite Raz range as well. But yeah. again, if you look at the whole sample and you look at all of the elite athlete, elite athletes in that tier, they don't hit at a rate any higher than the bad player or than the non-athletes in that tier. So, so then the next question is like for players like DK Metcalf and Terry McLaurin, who are, who are the outliers to the rules? Um, you know, these, these are guys that maybe the NFL likes more than the an- analytics community. Um, and so we've got guys like Kadarius Tony going into this year's draft, who's supposed to be a first round pick and in dynasty drafts, he might be going in the third round. Um, why do we think he's a bust and are we overfitting? Like, could we be learning some lessons that we didn't learn from the misses like Terry McLaurin or DK Metcalf? No, I don't think we're overfitting. Like, <laughs> like the, the list of guys like Kadarius, Tony, that they like, it's just really bad. It's not, it's not like, how do I word it? Um, uh, it's not like we just have one player that hits and then that changes like the rest of history, if that makes sense. Like, it's not like Kadarius Tony is the first bad player to get drafted in the first round. So now we need to consider that he's the, you know, the exception to the rule because there's a lot of bad players. And sorry, I don't mean bad. Like, I'm sure that he looks great on film. <laughs> I mean, bad probability, like, like mm. bad hit rate. Mm-hmm. There's lots of them. There's uh, what do I got here? I think that's 15 players. Yeah, I got 15 players drafting the first round that have like very bad production profiles. They're not necessarily all really bad production profiles in terms of like college dominator or even breakout age. They're bad production profiles across their career, their collegiate career. So I'm using like age adjusted production, right? So 
I'm looking for consistent excellence. I want them to dominate year over year over year. I want them to be serial winners. I don't want them to be flash in the pads because the flash in the pads, you don't really know what you have. They're risky. So we've got 15 players. Three of them actually went on to hit a top 24 season. That's not a very good hit rate. That's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 25% because I think I called them all maybes. Might be a little, little higher, a little lower. I don't know. You guys are probably really smart. What's the math on that? Three divided by 15. It's one out of five, right? 20%. Yeah. yeah. So Canary's Tony falls in that bucket if he gets drafted in the first round. If he gets drafted in the second round, like it, it's like 10%. It's over. <laughs> it's basically over. So, and and these guys, like I said, they're they're not necessarily like they've never dominated. Like a lot of these guys have really high college dominators. Like we have, uh, who do we got in here with the call high college dominator? Josh Doxson. Josh Doxson has a crazy high college dominator, and he has a crazy little breakout age. The problem with Josh Doxson is that his production was largely fueled by touchdowns. College dominator weights receiving yards and touchdowns at the same level. So it's basically their market share of receiving yards, their market share of touchdowns blended together at a 50-50 rate. That's a way overemphasis on touchdowns. Touchdowns are random. That's why we don't bet on them in fantasy. That's why betting on touchdown regression is usually a way to win in redraft, and you can usually buy low in dynasty based on touchdown regression or sell high because, you know, somebody gets like a absurd touchdown rate, and you're like, well, that's never going to happen again. So anyways, that affects this. That affects college dominator. Way more than it should. That's why I don't use touchdowns at all. I'm only looking at yards. So, and, and and then the other factor with College Dominator is that it's often per game. Like, it's game adjusted. So, if these players have high touchdown totals in low amounts of games, now we have small samples combined with unstable metrics. And it just is like a recipe for disaster. And that's what you get with, like, Josh Doxson. Devontae Parker was like that. High touchdowns. He only played, like, eight games his final season. So his college dominator just blows up. He had a, I think he had a moderately low breakout age too, though. But again, like it was touchdown fueled. And then you get into guys like uh, Henry or not Henry Ruggs. Henry Ruggs didn't produce at all. Never mind. He's he needed nothing. Um, who was I gonna say? Oh, uh, John Ross. Like John Ross didn't do anything until his final year. Then exploded, and then voila, we have a first round pick that ran real fast. Does this sound like? Anyone that we were just talking about, <laughs> like he's going to get boosted based on his 40 time in his final season. And he didn't do anything in college up until then. Mm-hmm. So, so what you're saying is that these are like almost the same profile. We can learn from history if we were yeah. to just look. <laughs> yeah. We can learn from history. If we were to just look like they might be different styles of player. Like John Ross was a field stretcher, right? So that's a totally different like play style than Kadarius Tony. Who's thought of as like this space back or space receiver that's going to make people miss in the open field and more of a slot receiver type Hmm. different styles of receiver but similar production profiles similar draft capital similar athleticism they might even be similar size i don't know how big Kadarius tony is to be honest i've i've kind of just ignored him because he's such a tiny if i remember correctly yeah he's just such a like nothing in my profile that i've never really looked that close into him because you just got like like there's so many better bets you can make than Kadarius Tony in the middle of your second round of your rookie draft or heaven forbid, if he gets into the back of your first round, like John Ross did. Yeah. Do you, do you look at the same type of metrics when 
you look at quarterbacks. Um, I, I feel like quarterbacks are like so incredibly hard to scout because there's so much that's going on, like scheme fit, the coaching situation, all of this stuff like matters more so than wide receivers or running backs. What are the different types of things you look for in QBs? Yeah, so I haven't actually had as much success as I would like to at quarterback. And it led me to this, uh, to like trying to get better, right? Like I want to have the best rankings. I want to have the best results. I want to win my fantasy leagues, of course. So just, you know, looking for ways to get better. And what I came across was this model called Cubase from Football Outsiders. I've heard or read, I can't remember if it was on a podcast or an article or something. The guy who developed it actually got hired by the Browns and was like instrumental in them drafting Baker Mayfield. It's like an incredible model. Like when I when I put it into my spreadsheet and I look at like the correlation on it, it's like super high, and it makes sense. Like when you go back and look at like the old guys, it's got like Aaron Rodgers and like Ben Roethlisberger and Eli Manning and uh, uh, Philip Rivers are like the top dogs in this in this model, and it's based on things like college experience and. Uh, I think they use adjusted yards per attempt, completion percentage, things like that. And then they also look at like S&P plus scores or like the metrics. So like your uh, S&P plus is looking at quality of competition. And then they look at who are your teammates? Like, are you just getting boosted by your teammates? Like Johnny Manziel, who mm-hmm. played with Mike Evans. Like obviously Mike Evans was the better half of that duo. <laughs> Johnny Manziel looked better. I mean, maybe Johnny Manziel's off-field stuff played a factor, but when he was on the field, he wasn't any good anyway in the NFL, so I'm not sure how true that exactly is. He probably would have busted, in my opinion, regardless of his off-field problems. But anyways, so they they factor in all this stuff, right? And then they they give them a score, and then you can test the score. And I, I use that as the basis of my model. or the I don't have a model. I don't, I don't do models. But that was the basis of my process. I use a threshold according to that scale. So once they're above this, then they're they're probably pretty good bet to hit. And then I use, you know, draft capital. Like someone like uh, Deshaun Watson didn't score very mm-hmm. well in, in Cubase. I'm not actually sure why. I've never looked into it. But uh, I'm assuming because he played at Clemson with a bunch of first-round picks and they won a national championship and he wasn't overly efficient in college from a passing perspective. That's the other thing. Cubase is only for passing. It has no, no bearing for rushing. So I'm assuming that he just wasn't a very efficient passer. He was a pretty good rusher in college, though. But anyways, and then once you factor in draft capital, it's like, well, if they're drafted in the top 15, they still have a pretty good shot. Like, it's still like 50-50, even if they were bad in Cubase. And then if they're drafted outside the top 15, then it gets really scary, and it's it, you just don't want to draft those guys. Mm-hmm. Just stay away. If they're not good in Cubase and they're drafted outside the top 15, it, it gets really scary. To be fair, it's actually the top 12. But uh, that's cherry picking because Deshaun Watson was the twelfth pick. <laughs> so do you I, look I, at it? Fifteen. Oh, nice. But uh, do you? Uh, sorry, I was just going to say. Sorry, and then the ahead. other thing that I have been using is age-adjusted PFF grades. PFF grades are literally useless at the running back and wide receiver position in college. They're very good in the NFL, but they're not very good in college. And when you age-adjust it. It, it, it reveals some interesting things like Deshaun Watson had one of the best age 18 PFF grades in the database. I think they started in 2010. So in the last decade or so, 
And it's like, whoa, well, that, that is an interesting data point. At least there was that kind of hope. Like he, he was good at that at least. And then again, I'm looking for the same kind of thing that I'm looking for with wide receivers. I want to see consistent excellence. I want to see them be good year over year over year. And uh, yeah, so that, that kind of thing doesn't change the grades for me though. That's more of like a, like a context within the grade. Like when I'm trying to figure out who's the best bulletproof prospect, that's the kind of thing I'll go to and say, okay, yeah. Like Trevor Lawrence has literally the best grades at like 18 and 19. Like he's, he's a prodigy, right? Like he, he walked into the call into he stepped onto campus and immediately was like the best quarterback in football period. And that matters. That shows us that his floor is like sky high. Like he is a good quarterback. Nothing can take that away from him. So anyways, do you think that for quarterbacks? Yeah. Do you think people are in like in this stage of the process are kind of overrating Trevor Lawrence? I know Chris Sims just put out his 2021 QB (laughs) ranking and Zach Wilson was the top of his list. And maybe we've been hearing Trevor Lawrence, Trevor Lawrence, Trevor Lawrence for so long that it's kind of ingrained in us that he should be the 101. But is there a situation where, you know, Zach Wilson actually ends up better than Trevor Lawrence? I mean, I think it's possible. Like anything's possible, right? Like who would have thought that Russell Wilson would be better than Andrew Luck? They're in the same class. That happened. So, I mean, I mean, I don't know that Russell Wilson's actually better than Andrew Luck, but like who would have thought they'd be comparable at the very mm-hmm. least? So is, is the question, could Zach Wilson be better? Yeah, of course he could be better. But the thing, like the other part of the question was, should Trevor Lawrence just be our one-on-one or are we getting like uh, weary of talking about him as the one-on-one? I don't think that's necessarily the case. Like I said, with Trevor Lawrence, there's like no doubt. Like the guy was like the best high school recruit of all time. He stepped on foot at Clemson and immediately led his team to like best seasons ever at Clemson. He has the highest PFF grades at 18 and 19, if I recall correctly. Like he's a, he's a super stud, right? The issue that I have with him is that I don't really have like anything that I can point to and say, yeah, he's actually elite though. There's no questioning his floor. Like he has an incredible floor. But I just don't know what separates him from everyone else in terms of him being the best player of all time, if that makes sense. Like, I think we might be mm-hmm. overstating his ceiling, but I, I, we are in no way understating his floor, if that makes any sense at all. <laughs> that makes sense. So you're basically saying that as the 101, he's the safest pick for you to for you to buy. But if you were to get the opportunity to trade him for a huge haul, you wouldn't wouldn't blink. Yeah, actually, funny that you ask. I play in this league. It's called the Tape versus Data League, and it has six tape data analysts or six tape analysts and six data analysts. And we go head to head, and obviously, to see like for for uh, scouting supremacy, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I made a trade yesterday. I had Trevor Lawrence on my team. It's a Debbie Debbie League. So I had Trevor Lawrence. I traded him for. Uh, who did I get? Uh, Zach Wilson, Trey Lance, and uh, a late Debbie depleted first, which is probably going to be somebody like Diami Brown. And then I got Delton Keene, who's like, but let, let's just tangent here for a second. <laughs> Delton Keene is somebody that we need to talk about. So my process is, is based on draft capital. is like a big part of it, right? Like film drives draft capital. Film matters. The game is played on the field. I get it. All that we're trying to do or all that I'm trying to do is say, who has the best chance of hitting of the good players, right? Like they get drafted on day one or day two. They're probably good at football. 
But we can separate those players into buckets of hit rates. And when we do that, it increases our hit rates. So with Dalton Keene, he checked all my boxes. But he was supposed to be a six-round pick. Like, he wasn't supposed to be a day-two pick. In grinding the mocks, he was a six-round pick. Every mock draft that I ever saw, he was a sixth, seventh, or undrafted pick. Mm. Like, there's no way in hell he was supposed to go on day two. And then Bill Belichick just, like, completely ruined everything (laughs) and drafted him in the third round, which pushed him up into my bulletproof tier. And now I have this Dalton Keene guy in my bulletproof tier, (laughs) and I have to go and buy him in every league because he's bulletproof now, even though he shouldn't be. He never should have been. It's Bill Belichick's fault. <laughs> He's the bane of my existence. That's the great thing about the bulletproof process, though, is like when when we have these, like I'm saying like 75% hit rate, right? The guys that miss, like we know who they are. Like they're the KJ Hamlers. Like he, he was a third-round rookie pick. We didn't expect him to actually be on the same level as T. Higgins and C.D. Lamb and Justin Jefferson. Mm. Like We knew that he wasn't a good bet, even though he qualified. Qualified. So... Dalton Keene, like, qualifies. So, I like, what drove this all? Is there, I'm going out to get my guy, Dalton Keene. And it, the only thing he would accept was Trevor Lawrence. So we had to throw in a couple other pieces like uh, Zach Wilson and Trey Lance to get the deal done. Worked out well for everyone. Everyone's happy. I have the woat. In the patrons' discord, we've been calling Dalton Keene the woat because he is literally the worst of all time bulletproof prospect. <laughs> there is no one worse as a bulletproof prospect. But he gets the bulletproof grade because of Bill Belichick. So I digress. So that's really fascinating. So I actually think that I would make that trade too. I would take the you know plethora of prospects uh, over Trevor Lawrence because, I mean, I totally agree with you. Trevor Lawrence, pe- people really value safety, right? That's why they invest in their 401ks. But uh, people really want to become you know millionaires off of GameStop. Uh, and if you're one of those people, um, I think, you know, we have a lot of quarterback prospects in this draft, um, that have perhaps a much lower floor than Trevor Lawrence, but a much, much, much higher, uh, ceiling, uh, than Trevor Lawrence too. And, and that kind of leads me to, you know, something that I personally am very afflicted by, which is the lack of Justin Fields love on the timeline. (laughs) Uh, You know, I think that Justin Fields is a great player, um, but, you know, there's been a lot of talk about his lack of ability to progress through the field. Uh, You know, he isn't as spectacular as Zach Wilson. Um, So kind of based in that, looking at the quarterbacks that we have in this draft class, how do they compare to one another in your rankings and also in Cubase? Well, Cubase isn't out yet. It doesn't come out till April, so we don't actually know. But, like, I do Debbie rankings, so I kind of, like, um, reconstructed it to some extent. Like, I look at the same stuff that they look at for the most part. I I don't really look at yards per – adjusted yards per attempt because I I don't really see much of a correlation there. And completion percentage doesn't really matter to me either. So I look at like the same kind of like peripheral stuff. And then I also look at uh, like PFF grade and ESPN's QBR and like things like that instead. But um, with, sorry, let's go on a little tangent there. When we're talking about Justin Fields, he is like the, he's like the perfect fantasy quarterback, right? Like he, He's the he's big, so he's like you know huge. He can run the goal line sneaks. 
He is a Konami quarterback. Like the Konami code is like what you need at the quarterback. Like it used to be a luxury, the Konami code. It's now like a necessity. Like you can't be an elite quarterback without some rushing production. And Justin Fields is going to offer that. And then when we're looking at fantasy. We want guys that throw the ball down the field. We don't want the check down Charlies that, you know, require a incredible supporting cast to get yak for them to make them relevant. Like that's like Jimmy Garoppolo, like relying on like Debo Samuel and George Kittle to get just huge yak on every pass or uh, Jared Goff relying on his receivers to get huge yak on every pass. Like we want guys that throw the ball down the field, like a Matt Stafford or, or uh, players like that, like Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady, like all those guys throw the ball down the field. They're not check down Charlie's. So with fields, his 2019 average depth of target was something crazy. Like it was, I can't remember the specific now, but it was like 12. And most guys were in like the eight, nine, maybe 10 range. His was like absurdly high. So when you have the Konami code quarterback and you have the guy throwing the ball down the field and you have the big guy, like there's no way that there's nothing that he can't do on the football field. That's required to score fantasy points. Like whatever the situation he can score fantasy points. And the other great thing about Justin Fields is that he's been excellent at every step of the way. Like he has that consistent excellence. He wasn't the best quarterback prospect of all time from a high school recruiting perspective because Trevor Lawrence was, but he was like second. So he's a serial winner other than, you know, at Georgia where he couldn't beat out Jake Fromm, which I think might be more of a, uh, indication that Kirby smart is actually Kirby dumb. I don't know for sure, but (laughs) might be part of it. So then he transfers to Ohio and he just like immediately dominates at Ohio. He has a great PFF grade in his first year starting. He has a great PFF grade in his second year starting. We've never seen Justin Fields be anything other than great. Mm. So he has a great, like a really high floor, kind of like Trevor Lawrence. But then with Justin Fields, we, we see those extras like, and not, not to say that Trevor Lawrence isn't a Konami quarterback because he is, but Trevor Lawrence's average depth of throw was like eight or nine. I can't remember specifically. Justin Fields was like 12. So like there's a big gap there in terms of like willingness to throw the ball down the field. So I wouldn't be shocked at all if Justin Fields actually was the better fantasy quarterback, but the film, like this is a film position. Like it's really hard to, scout quarterbacks analytically like wide receiver i feel like it's like a solved equation through analytics mm-hmm. quarterback is a lot more difficult q base is great but even then like once we get into the guys that qualify on q base we're still not getting like fantasy superstars because there mm-hmm. aren't a lot of fantasy superstars at the quarterback position like there's only you know one tom brady one peyton manning one drew Brees. after those three guys like who else do you comfortably put into that like elite quarterback range? Aaron Rodgers, you know, that's uh four guys over 20 years. Like there's just not a lot of them where we feel comfortable saying these guys are all great fantasy assets. A lot of starter years in there. Like you can get Ben Roethlisberger and Eli Manning and Phillip Rivers. They, they like, they are very good fantasy quarterbacks, but they're not elite fantasy quarterbacks. And who's to say that Trevor Lawrence doesn't have that kind of career. Like, could still be a hall of famer like those guys are all on fringe hall of famers mm-hmm. but they didn't really win you any fantasy leagues in the last 20 years any of those guys like they're all in the back end quarterback one range pretty much throughout their entire careers except for eli manning he was more like fringe quarterback one like a lot of quarterback two seasons 
And even actually Roethlisberger, now that I think about it, he didn't have that many quarterback one seasons either. He was more of a fringe quarterback one, quarterback two as well. So, yeah, I like Justin Fields. I'm with you. There should be What's more the gap? What do you think is the gap between, say, Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields and whoever you have as your QB3? Uh, well, I, like, I'm taking Trevor Lawrence at number one because I feel like the safety's there, and I, I don't know that he doesn't have an elite ceiling. Like, I think mm-hmm. he could. I just don't know that he does. Whereas at, like, the wide receiver position or the running back position, like, we we know a lot of the guys that have the elite ceilings as prospects. At quarterback, I feel like I don't know who has an elite ceiling. Like, Patrick Mahomes, for instance, I wouldn't have said he had an elite ceiling. Film guys might have because he makes off-platform throws and all that kind of stuff. But analytically, there wasn't really a lot there to say elite ceiling. So with Trevor Lawrence, I'm like, yeah, he's got, like, the safest floor. And it, and the floor is high, like, super high. And then with Justin Fields, it's like, yeah, I think he's, like, right there with Trevor Lawrence. Like, I don't see a big gap between the two. And to be honest, for fantasy, I might even prefer Fields from a ceiling perspective because of all the ways that he has to win. And that mostly comes down to him throwing the ball down the field. That's the only real thing that I can see the difference between Fields and and Lawrence. But the film guys don't think that it's that close. Like most film guys still think Lawrence and no one else. And so I'm just going to side with them on that one. And then my third guy would be Zach Wilson, who, who doesn't have the same like uh, body of work of Justin Fields. Like, we've only ever seen Justin Fields be great. We've seen a lot of mediocrity from Zach Wilson. Like, <laughs> yeah. we've seen him be a nobody for two years. And then he popped, and the and the pop was great. Like, he was, like, an elite pop. But it's still only one year. And if I'm making a bet on my Dynasty team, I'm taking the guy with more, more of a resume because he's safer. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that this position is pretty heavily tied to film. Is there any other like qualitative data that goes into your decision for where you rank Justin Fields or Zach Wilson or Mac Jones? This stuff like his work ethic or his personality or what teammates are saying about him like make a difference for you? I, I don't really think it makes much of a difference to me. Like if they're like we were talking earlier, like if, if they have a good work ethic, it probably showed up in their college production. Like they probably did well in college because of their good work ethic. So it doesn't really change anything for me. And then it's like, that's, you can't, you can't know if it matters, if that makes sense. Like we don't know that work ethic matters. We assume it does because it does in virtually every walk of life, but we don't really know if that's what separates player A from player B. Um, And if, if work ethic did matter, it probably mattered in college and got picked up in some other metric that we are looking mm. at that we can measure. Mm-hmm. In terms of uh, like teammate stuff, I don't know. Like if somebody doesn't go to Zach Wilson's birthday party, are we gonna knock him down our draft board? <laughs> like, I, I probably won't. But, I mean, maybe I guess. We'll see. <laughs> Do we'll they see. have birthday parties at uh, BYU? Is that a lie? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Qualitative factors that I do factor in, though, and and this is the same at every position, like situation does matter to me. Like where they land matters a ton. Not Mm. not a ton, like it's not going to change somebody's grade, but it's context that I think plays plays an impact in where I'm going to have them ranked. Like last year, I had Tua Tonga Veloa ranked number one. He was my pre-draft quarterback one because of his body of work. Joe Burrow was that late guy that, that popped in his final season, like Zach Wilson. Not to say that it's bad. It's just, it makes me nervous. That's all that it is. 
So Tua was my number one. And then the draft happened and Tua went to the Dolphins, which was not what I wanted. I wanted him to go to the Chargers because I felt the Chargers had this like perfect landing spot for a quarterback. They had Keenan Allen, who I think is one of the best wide receivers in football. They had Hunter Henry, who's I think a very good uh, tight end. They had Mike Williams, who's like a pretty good deep target. And then Austin Eckler out of the backfield, which is like a perfect dump off option, the like safety blanket, right? So I felt like the Chargers was the best landing spot. And Justin Herbert ended up there. I actually like bumped Justin Herbert because of that landing spot in my rankings. Because I just felt like there wasn't a lot of space to fail. And when you look at like the inefficient quarterbacks that did go on to be successful in the NFL, a lot of them are tied to these like superstar wide receivers. There's a good, they're good at Q base too. Like, don't get me wrong. Like Aaron Rodgers has a fantastic Q base, but he also landed with like Jordy Nelson and Devonte Adams. And he had that kind of like supporting cast out of the gate. And the, the hesitation with Aaron Rodgers would be that he wasn't very efficient, right? In college. Mm-hmm. The same thing happened to like Matt Ryan. Like Matt Ryan wasn't very efficient in college. Well, he landed with Roddy White and then he got Julio Jones. So it's hard to fail when you have a Julio Jones to throw to. Uh, Matt Stafford's another one. Matt Stafford was inefficient, good Q base, but inefficient in college. He lands with Calvin Johnson. Calvin Johnson is the tide that raises all ships. Like it doesn't matter who the quarterback is when it's Calvin Johnson. And that's enough to get these players through their growing pains of being young. And I find that a lot of times the quarterbacks that do go on to be good, they're not necessarily good as rookies. They're not like they're they're, they're not good as rookies. Let me let me stop. They're not good as rookies. A lot of these guys were terrible rookies. Peyton Manning was a terrible rookie. I mean, like if he he was still pretty good though. I think he had a lot of yards, but he wasn't a great like efficient rookie. Like uh, Andrew Luck. Andrew Luck didn't have an efficient rookie season based on some of the stuff I look at, like PFF grades in the NFL are very good for quarterbacks. He did not have a good rookie year PFF grade. Uh, Tua Tungaveloa had a better PFF rookie grade. So when we're looking at like that kind of thing, I think situation matters to some extent because it helps the players get through that like growing pain phase of their career. And can, uh, you know, boost production as well. Like pretty well every year we have a rookie quarterback that hits top 12 as a rookie. And then we have a whole bunch that don't. <laughs> and the one that usually hits is usually the uh, the Konami Code guys. Like those are the guys that usually hit as rookies. Like Dak Prescott hit because of his rushing upside for the most part as a rookie. He was an okay passer, but he, was, he, he got a lot of rushing yards. So anyway, back to the situation. Tuatonga Veloa goes to the Dolphins. The Dolphins just like, do, they do nothing in the draft. And it's so disappointing to me. And then I see the Bengals, who I like, like Tyler Boyd and AJ Green. Like, I, they're good wide receivers. But they go out and they draft T. Higgins, who I love. And I'm like, oh, man, like, they're setting Joe Burrow up for success. Mm-hmm. So after the draft, Joe Burrow went to my number one. Tuatonga Veloa fell down a little bit. He was closer to to uh, Justin Herbert. Like, they, they, all three guys were actually... Uh, what were they five no six seven eight in my rank my super flex rankings but i i felt a lot better about justin herbert after the draft than i did before the draft (laughs) so let's say that uh you know you have these multitude of quarterbacks um one of them ends up in carolina where you you're dealing with you know dj moore robbie anderson and potentially curtis uh samuel plus cmc in the backfield 
would that quarterback, uh, you know, given its situation, uh, be in, uh, you know, uh, would they be bumped up in your rankings compared to a QB that would go to the Jets and let's say they're they're going to have eh, assets around that that quarterback? Yeah, I like if whoever goes to the Jets, I'm really hoping they get some good players because like, <laughs> Denzel Mims ain't it. Jameson Crowder is like he's a he's an NFL receiver, but like that's all that he is. He's nothing special. So whoever goes to the Jets, he needs help, and if they don't get any help he's going to probably fall to the bottom of my quarterback tier mm-hmm. one. So yeah, that's going to be a scary landing spot. I hopefully they draft somebody in the second round. Do they even have a second round pick? I'm assuming they do. Hopefully they pick up a good wide receiver in the second round that they can pair with him like a T Higgins. We'll see. Or maybe they get some free agents. Like they're supposed to just be this uh, salary cap crunch and everyone's getting cut next week. So we'll see who ends up on the free agency list. Maybe they can get a cheap free agent that's really good. And that would, you know, bolster the supporting cast for whoever, whichever quarterback lands in, in the Jets kingdom or whatever they call it. The Chiefs kingdom, right? What's the Jets one called? Just J-E-T-S. <laughs> J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, Jets. So anyways, yeah, like if if I have quarterbacks that are similar, like like a Zach Wilson and Justin Fields or a, a you know, like they're like I shouldn't even say no, there, there's no chance that Trevor Lawrence falls out of my one on one because the film community says he's that good. So you say maybe if, you know, Fields ends up in Carolina, maybe he bumps Trevor Lawrence, but it's not going to happen. He'll he'll still be my quarterback, too. But if. Wilson ends up in Carolina and Fields ends up in the Jets and the Jets don't do anything. And they send him out there with Denzel Mims, kind of like the Dolphins hung to a tongue Dibitua. of a to dry with, you know, Mike <laughs> and Devontae Parker, like a bunch of duds. Check out yeah. Drew's video on Mike Gusecki, please. Uh, you, you will learn to hate this man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like, yeah. They, they, they did to a tongue of a no favors. Mm. And then, anyways, so if that happens, if Zach Wilson goes to the Panthers and Fields goes to the Jets, yeah, I'll probably move Wilson ahead of Fields. And and assuming the Jets don't do anything. They send Denzel Mims and Jamison Crowder, and I forget the fourth-round pick that they have there at tight end now that popped as a rookie but didn't do anything his last two years now. I think it's two years. Is it Herndon? Yeah, Herndon, Chris Herndon. If they send him out there with those three guys as his main targets, like he better run, run for a lot of yards. <laughs> yeah. So when we look at uh, different like rankings and stuff for quarterbacks and wide receivers, it it's really easy for the community to just say like, okay, here are like my top ten guys, right? But w- when you go into an actual rookie draft how do you make the choices? You know, there are a bunch of really hard choices. There are different positional values that you have to pay attention to. Um, You have to pay attention to your like team need. Um, And then also like, who's the best player available. Um, So for example, if you're drafting at somewhere like 104, you've potentially got Trevor Lawrence coming off the board, Zach Wilson coming off the board, Justin Fields coming off the board. You've got a lot of really good players at 104, just because all these quarterbacks are taken. You got like Jamar Chase, Travis Etienne, Najee Harris. How do you choose in that moment when you only have a couple minutes? <laughs> only a couple minutes? You guys are playing in fast, 
fast draft? Come on, man. <laughs> yeah, we don't, draft. we don't, we don't do those eight-hour ones. Not oh, yet. You got to get in the eight-hour ones. You got to <laughs> wheel and deal, and that, now I understand your question from before about uh, you know how do you, how do you choose in the minute? Okay, so how I choose in the minute is I build my draft board, right? Like I know what I'm going, what I'm going to take going in, and it doesn't really change because I drafted ADP. So if I can't trade out of my pick and the only guy I can take is, say, Najee Harris, like let's do a hypothetical. Let's say that I'm on the pick at 104 and the options are the, you know, Fields, uh, Lawrence, and Zach Wilson are all gone. So I'm picking between the skill position players. So it's Jamar Chase or Najee Harris. I look at what their value is. Is Najee Harris substantially more valuable in the market than Jamar Chase? If he is, then I'll take Najee Harris and I'll try to trade him. If he's not... If they're the same, then I'll take Jamar Chase because he ranks higher on my board. So how do I build my board? That's probably what you're getting at here. So this is kind of an interesting exercise. I've I I I used to do it on like positional value, right? Like I thought that, well, I, I know that running backs contribute more to wins and losses than any other position. Then for me, it comes down to quarterback or wide receiver. What's the next best tier or what's the next best position? Well, Quarterbacks to me in Superflex hold more trade value. They may not have higher ADPs, but if you're trying to trade for one, friggin' expensive. So I want the quarterbacks, and they contribute similar in terms of production or in terms of, uh, you know, like value over stream type production in Dynasty Leagues. So I want the quarterbacks, and then I want the wide receivers, and then I want the tight ends. And that has to do with things like uh, first year hit rate, first year value gains uh second year hit rate second year value gains like all that kind of stuff is all built into this and then it's just sorting the profile the prospect profiles from that point so it's not necessarily um you know every every running back goes first and then every quarterback and then every wide receiver like, it doesn't work like that it's based on the tiers of the prospect rates so the generational players go first whatever position they are except for tight end because tight ends are tight ends and they don't really matter Unless you get Travis Kelsey and I'm taking the under if my option is Travis Kelsey or anyone else. I'm just not betting on it being a Travis Kelsey. This is a Kyle Pitts tangent. <laughs> he looks incredible. He's probably incredible. But if my options are Travis Kelsey or bust, I'm betting on the bust because there's way more likelihood that it's that than the first one. So anyways, generational. And then we look at the positions. So bulletproof running backs. I did this this exercise with the patrons actually because i always thought that sorry let's finish this bulletproof running backs are first because they're really high hit rates they have really high value gains they're really really good players right and they matter like they they matter for fantasy football they're the ones that drive wins and losses and then i always kind of thought it would be coin flip running backs because yeah like the chance that they hit supersedes the fact that they might miss because they ma- if they hit, they matter more than the wide receivers. But what changed is, I don't remember if we talked about Coop or not, but Coop from Coop underscore DFF on Twitter, he's my main patron guy. Him and I went back and forth on the alpha thing. And the alpha bulletproof wide receivers are like exactly what you want on your dynasty team. So I ended up putting the alpha bulletproof wide receivers above the coin flip running backs, even though running backs matter more because the alpha bulletproof wide receivers are like your, your Devonte Adams and your DeAndre Hopkins and your Allen Robinson and, and like these kinds of players. So when you, when you juxtapose the coin flip running backs with the alpha wider alpha bulletproof players, 
like I put it up for the patrons. I didn't tell them what I was doing. I was just like, which group would you rather have blindly? And you ha- and you know what the result is as prospects. Who are you drafting if you got to pick this group or this group? And it was like unanimously the alpha bulletproof wide receivers. So I was like, oh, yeah, I, I agree. Like I've had the same thought. I'm moving that ahead of my coin flip running backs because I thought I was actually going to have, you know, a Najee Harris, a Joe Anthony Williams, and a and a uh, Travis Etienne ahead of someone like Rashad Bateman. And then when I looked at it, I was like, whoa, like, whoa, no. Like the, the, the impact that Rashad Bateman can have, the value that he can bring to your team, the value he can bring to your wins and losses is way better than the downside of the coin flip running backs like the coin flip running backs are they're like josh jacobs and clyde edwards hilaire like a lot of them are just kind of like fringe guys to begin with and then there there are some guys that just like crush it like maurice jones drew stephen jackson chris johnson marshall lynch like those guys are all in the coin flip tier but then if you scroll to the bottom of the coin flip tier there's a whole bunch of guys that you definitely didn't want to draft like jeremy hill and amir abdullah and bishop sankey and David Wilson, like these were all highly toted guys, similar to Najee Harris and and Travis Etienne and so on and so forth. So when you juxtapose it, it's just like, it's not even a contest. I want the alphas. And then I just kept doing that. I kept going like, okay, what about this group? What about this group? Which group would I rather have? So now mm-hmm. I have like a process on how I even do my, my ranking tiers. And then like, it's not going to be hundred percent. Like sometimes I'll just like move some guys down or some guys up based on external factors. Like, you know, a uh, KJ Hamler, like I don't care that he's bulletproof or Dalton Keene. I don't care that he's bulletproof because they're just not, they're not actually bulletproof. Like, like there's other stuff that isn't going into the grade that is, that is causing me tremendous amounts of hesitation, despite Bill Belichick's feelings around Dalton (laughs) Keene. Despite going against the goat there, the goat and the (laughs) woat. Perfect pairing, right? Yeah. So when you look so, at something like that, um, where you're talking about fading Kyle Pitts and having different tiers of like alpha, beta compared to your coin flip running backs, and you, then you look at the quarterbacks in superflex leagues, quarterbacks are just so important. And we're looking at potentially getting five first round guys uh, in the NFL this year, which hasn't happened since, well, 2018 was the last time it happened in the last 20 years. Um, which is insane. It's like, there's so many quarterbacks going in the first round draft. Would you be reaching if you were to take like a Mac Jones or Trey Lance over some of these other guys that you mentioned? So, yeah, like I'm looking for special ability first. And I think that the first three quarterbacks have the special ability with, with high floors. Like, I don't, I don't think that Zach Wilson is going to bust, but, uh, by any stretch. So I think he has a high floor and he has like an elite ceiling because film guys are telling us he has an elite ceiling. He throws off platform. He does this, he does that, so on and so forth. So I think those guys are in a tier of their own right now. If there were bulletproof running backs though, like if we were in last year's class and we had Jonathan Taylor and Cam Akers and, and uh, JK Dobbins and DeAndre Swift, I'd put them ahead of Lawrence. Like I wouldn't have an issue with that because those guys are going to be first round picks. Trevor Lawrence may not be a first-round pick. Like, Justin Herbert just had, like, a record-setting rookie year, and he's not a first-round startup pick. So, like, those those guys can't get there. Running backs, on the other hand, and and quarterbacks aren't necessarily going to be valuable in year one. 
Running backs, on the other hand, they have a chance to be valuable in year one, like they in terms of uh production, like they can actually be RB1s in year one. Wide receivers really can't. Like it's super rare for a wide receiver to hit a wide receiver one season in their rookie year. That's why wide receivers are a little lower down for me because year one, I still want to win in year one. So the running backs, I can get that year one production and I can get, you know, extreme value gains and they're pretty safe. Like the, the bulletproof tier running backs are super safe. The quarterbacks, again, they're super safe. They don't have the same type of elite um, value gain potential. Like we just don't usually see them get into that value range unless they're Kyler Murray and they like, you know, have the potential to break fantasy uh, based on rushing ability and so on and so forth. And, and maybe Lawrence and Fields will. Like, I don't know. Maybe they will have that kind of ability at the NFL level. They probably will, to be honest. But um, after those guys, then we're looking at ceiling floor, right? And Trey Lance is a guy that has, like, perhaps the highest ceiling in the class. Like, he has the best Konami code ability. He has the rubber band arm is what I keep being told by my uh, film gurus. So he has just like, and, and he's super young. Like he, he's like, tw- I think he's the youngest guy. I think he's 20 right now. So yeah. like he has, sky's the limit for him. But he only has one year of production. He only has one year of play. Like not even one year of production, one year of play at a low level. And like, it's just a little scary. And and he's not getting the Zach Wilson kind of hype from the film. Community. Right. Like, like he's not at that level and maybe it's just, you mean maybe next year he would have, if he would have stayed for another year. But anyways, the point is to say that he's a little bit risky. So I'm moving him down a little bit and then we'll have like a Jamar chase who I think is going to be generational. Like, like we were talking earlier, I'm right now I'm assuming that he's going to be like a generational type player. And I just want to reemphasize that generational doesn't mean once in a generation, don't take these tiers literally. It just means it's it's like a catchy name, right? Like <laughs> it just means that I'm looking for a way to separate my bulletproof tier into another level, and he's in that other level. He's in like I think he's the best prospect since Julio Jones. I think he's a better prospect than Amari Cooper. I think he's a better prospect than anybody in last year's class, and the year before, and the year before, and the year before. Like he's the best prospect since Julio Jones. So if I can get him after I can get these like generational, not generational type run, or bullet or not these generational type quarterbacks, but these really good quarterbacks that have high, high, high floors and high, high ceilings. I'll take the wide receiver because I think he's going to be like a game changer for a decade. If that makes sense. Now, what if I were to tell you that according to proprietary breakout analysis uh, (laughs) that, that Leo and I have done uh, that we actually have almost a bulletproof, uh, you know, uh, ADP rise for any first round or quarterback in general uh, from their rookie year to year two. Um, I think uh, if I were to pull up the numbers right here for for quarterbacks uh, drafted since 2015, we had 29 quarterbacks uh, who were fantasy relevant enough to have ADPs in year one and year two. Of those, 66% of them saw a rise in ADP. In 44% of them saw a rise of at least 50 spots. These numbers are even better for first round quarterbacks. Does this change the formula at all? Does that draft capital make you think that, hey, no matter what, 
that valuation, that growth and asset value is worth, you know, drafting them a little bit higher compared to their, you know, uh, their ADP. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, I, I, like I use kind of a similar process, um, when I do my ADP trend stuff and with quarterbacks, yes, I agree. They do get nice bumps, uh, but they don't get to the running back level. And if we're, if we're comparing it to running backs in general, like all running backs, then yeah, I would probably prefer the quarterbacks from that standpoint. But when we narrow it down to the different tiers of running backs and we're looking at only the bulletproof running backs, then it's, I just want the bulletproof running backs because like I said, they, they're such high probability of hitting. And, and I use like top 12 running back or top 12 seasons at running back. So we're talking about like meaningful production at the running back position. We're talking about potential first round picks like DeAndre Swift and Cam Akers and Jonathan Taylor are all startup first round picks right now. If I recall correctly, maybe Cam Akers is just outside the first round. He's right there though. So, and then, you, and then you look at the bulletproof quarterbacks, and again, we I don't have a good way to to really differentiate the high end quarterbacks from the really good quarterbacks, and maybe that's part of the problem. But uh, when you look at that, like I think Trevor Lawrence has a great chance to be a first round pick because of his like innate hype since he was a high school prospect or high school recruit. So, but if you look at last year's class, just just last year's class. We had Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert and Tua Tungaveloa as like the top three, and none of those guys are in the first round right now. And three of the four, potentially four of the four, uh, running backs are all in the first round. So let me just check that. Let me let me fact check for a second here. In the first round, we have. Oh, we don't. Oh, I haven't updated it yet. Hold on. Right now, I have Jonathan Taylor. At two, J.K. Dobbins at 15, DeAndre Swift at 14, and Cam Akers at 12. So we're talking all like virtually first-round picks mm-hmm. in startup drafts. And I think that's outdated. I think that's actually uh, January's numbers. So I think in February I saw that DeAndre Swift was a first-round pick in every single DLF mock draft, which is pretty wild. So from my perspective, the running backs, like the good running backs are still above the good quarterbacks because we, uh, I'm better at projecting the elite ceiling on the good running backs than I am the good quarterbacks. Mm-hmm. And then when we get to the elite wide receivers, like Justin Jefferson is pretty much as good as it gets. Mm-hmm. And he's like a fringe first rounder. And that's like historic rookie season. And turns out historic <laughs> wide receiver grade that I didn't know about. Whoops. Sorry, everyone. Sorry, sorry, patrons. Got that one wrong, kind of. I still told you to draft him, though. He's still bulletproof. I just didn't know he was generational. But, uh, yeah, like, for, for a wide receiver or quarterback to get to the level of a good running back, it, it's just really rare. Mm-hmm. So I think it'd be fair to say, then, that your strategy when it comes to dynasty, all in all, is that you are looking to maintain value and you're looking to uh, draft for value. You're not looking to reach based on talent. You're not looking to get cute with it. Regardless of your team need, draft what the board gives you based on the valuation that you get and then move those assets around to fill out the rest of your needs. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm not a I'm not worried about my starting lineup in, you know, April, May, June, July, August, even sometimes into September. I'm looking at what's the market value of these players. 
in, in a draft. Like I'm looking at the ADP and then I'm trying to maneuver my way around the draft board to get to the spots that I want to be drafting in. Like Rashad Bateman's probably going to be a late first round pick. So I, if I have a mid first round pick and Jamar Chase is gone, I'm going to be trying like hell to trade back and take Rashad Bateman because I don't want the running backs that are probably going to go there. And I don't want, you know, the Devonta Smith or the Jalen Waddle that's probably going to go ahead of them. I'm going to move mountains to move back to get my guy, Rashad Bateman, the alpha bulletproof wide receiver that looks like Devontae Adams and DeAndre Hopkins and Allen Robinson. That's the guy that I want. So I'll just manipulate the draft board by moving up and down to try to get into the right spot to draft the guys that I want at their correct value. That Sorry. makes sense. <laughs> cool. Awesome. That wraps up all the questions that we have for you today. Uh, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Uh, we really appreciated all the insight that you bring. Um, just to reiterate one more time, do you want to walk the viewers through all of your different platforms that you're on, Twitter, YouTube, et cetera? Sure. Yeah. So I'm on Twitter at DFBeanCounter. And then I've recently started a podcast, which is pretty exciting. I think we are the fourth episode went up yesterday and it was the most downloaded first day episode of the history of the podcast. So very exciting. Like the first episode, I'm going to be honest with you, pretty shaky, pretty (laughs) shaky. The fourth episode, I feel like we're getting it down a little bit. I think it sounded pretty good. Check it out. Maybe don't listen to the first one. Until you listen to the first three, <laughs> you know, do them in reverse order because they definitely are better at the end. Anyways, got the new podcast. It's uh, Bulletproof Fantasy Football. You can find it on basically, I think, everywhere uh, that podcasts can be found. And then we got the YouTube channel, which is really great because a lot of my analysis, as you've probably just heard, is database. We didn't really get into a lot of the numbers today, but sometimes on my podcast, we get into like the specific numbers, like this number versus this number, so on and so forth. Hard to follow on a podcast. The YouTube channel literally cuts the podcast into segments. So player X now gets his own segment on YouTube and the producer puts in the graphs. You can follow it. You can see it. There's visual aids to go with the numbers. It just makes it a whole lot easier to follow again on, on Twitter at uh, Bulletproof Fantasy Football. And then my, like the bulk of everything that I do, the, where the magic happens is all on my Patreon. We have a discord and it is just constant fantasy football stuff. It's basically an extension of my Twitter channel. Uh, I post stuff as I'm figuring it out. It's really more like teach you to fish than give you a fish. I'm not in there answering trade questions. I don't answer trade questions for the patrons. I don't answer trade questions for anyone. I find that's really like minimal value. It's really like there's no recurring value to me telling you that I like player X more than player Y in the Patreon, what I'm doing in the Discord is I'm telling you why I like player X more than player Y. And those are the types of questions I answer, not trade questions about your specific team, more like high level. Why is this guy ranked over this guy? Why is this guy ranked over this guy? Why don't you have DK Metcalf at wide receiver one when everyone else does? Why don't you have AJ Brown at wide receiver one when everybody else does? That's the kind of questions that I'm answering in the Discord. Hop in there. That's where all the magic happens. We got dynasty rankings, Debbie rankings, cornerstone rankings, rookie rankings. I got three different sets of rookie rankings depending on the format that you play in there's one qb super flex and two tight end league rookie rankings it's all great um yeah that's pretty much everything oh and then got the rookie guide coming out my rookie stuff is usually my most popular stuff uh if you go on my twitter and you search i think it's hashtag bulletproof prospect you'll find a bunch of the 
the threads on the rookie guy or on the rookie prospect profiles. And that's basically what I'm putting into a guide this year. So it's going to be a top 50 players. I think it's going to be pretty cool. I think you'll, if you like those, you're going to like the guide. We'll put it that way. That's all I got. Support Drew. Uh, his work is really, really awesome. We've been following him for over a year. Uh, follow him uh, on all of those platforms. We'll include the links below in the description. Uh, and make sure to follow and subscribe uh, Breakout Dynasty uh, on Twitter uh, and on YouTube uh, for more content like this. We'd love to have Drew on again in the future. But so far, we absolutely loved having you on. Thanks for coming on, Drew. And uh, this has been another episode of The Breakout. Let's hit the music. Music.